we've looked at this recently uh, how do the how the outcomes uh, how the outcomes compare not just right now but over time if you go back a decade or one and a half decades was there a time when the NHS was massively better than now uh, short answer is no uh, it's always been this bad I mean not not with the uh, with the massive waiting time figures that we have now but uh, purely in terms of all the outcomes that I normally look at, the survival rates for this and that. Uh, there it's always been the case that the NHS is doing worse than a lot of the other systems. Welcome to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IA. Each week this podcast asks a tantalising policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, are doctors underpaid? This week marks the biggest strike in the NHS's history as junior doctors walk out over a pay dispute. This comes as new data suggests that there are 7.2 million people on NHS waiting lists, whilst a new British social attitude survey says that public satisfaction with the healthcare system is at record lows. To discuss this topic, I'm very excited to be joined by the IA's own Christian Niemitz, who is our head of political economy here at the IA. Christian has written numerous uh, books, papers, and articles on the topic of Britain's healthcare system, including our 2016 publication, Universal Healthcare Without the NHS. Christian, welcome to the podcast. Before we, I think, dive into some of the broader issues of the NHS, I'm interested in your opinion on this question that has really dominated a lot of the media discussion last week, which is, are doctors um, underpaid? Well, the honest answer is, I don't know. I mean, who knows? <laughs> what is the appropriate rate for a doctor or any healthcare worker? Uh, there's no obvious answer to that. And that's always the problem during these pay disputes that uh, when, when there's, whenever there's a pay dispute in the NHS, uh, whether it's nurses, junior doctors, some other group, we always get these requests from the media where they want to set up some confrontational debate. Mm. They want somebody... Uh, from the from the union, somebody from from the strikers, or somebody who sympathises with them against somebody who is anti, somebody who says uh, no, they shouldn't get paid more, and they uh, they always assume that we are the baddies in that situation. We are going to be the the Ebenezer Scrooge of the of the healthcare world, who who will say no, doctors shouldn't get paid, nurses shouldn't get paid. Whereas the reality is, I just don't have a view on how much any particular. Um, profession mm. should get paid. This is something that we should just work out through the market as we do in most other parts of the economy. But in the healthcare sector, we don't have an equivalent of that. We don't have a medical labor market. There, there is no, indeed, there is no market mechanism or competitive labor yeah. market for doctors, uh, which I think in some respects is the central issue here. Indeed, I, I did have an experience this week where I went on a TV show. I was up against a, a self-declared, I, I think, Socialist Party member. And I was, I was meant to be there to say, actually, the doctors are played loads. I didn't exactly say that. I said, and I think that there are two ways you can look at this. There is, I think there's like a, a genuine sympathetic point here that uh, junior, very junior doctors, foundation doctors, aren't paid particularly well. They're paid above the average income, but for the fact that they've just spent five years, six years studying, they're, you know, probably uh, in terms of other things they could be doing with their lives, they're not particularly well paid. They use the figure of 14 pounds an hour. Bit of an exaggeration because it doesn't include overtime. And as um, I think you discussed in your piece in the Telegraph, there's guaranteed career progression. Uh, you do get paid quite decently a doctor over time. You get extremely generous pension yeah. um, arrangements. Now, I think the reason why we talk about this and the reason why it is, in some respects, a matter of genuine public debate is because this is set through a, a state 
state-run system, a state-run arbitration system. Therefore, effectively, ministers do have to make a call. You know, they try to outsource it to some body to make an assessment, but then they set the criteria that that outsourced body looks at. So inevitably, these things are political choices. They are. You could say, as long as you have a state-run health service, uh, that is always going to be, to some extent, a political question. But even then, um, there are parts of the of the public sector which still make use of uh, of market signals. So, if uh, say if the Foreign Office, if they hire translators, um, okay, there would not be a market for this specific service that the Foreign Office provides in, in, in that context, that's something which only the state does and where we don't know how much people would be prepared to pay for it if this was bought and sold on markets. But nonetheless, there is a labor market in translators and there is a going rate which the Foreign Office just has to accept. Uh, they just have to take that market signal. They can't go much below uh, or well, they can go above, but that would then be a waste and then they would, they would notice that they have far too many applicants. And uh, I guess in the same way, there are systems uh, that are not fully private, but where there is enough of a market component. I'm guessing the Australian system would come reasonably close, where you have uh, public hospitals, but also lots of private ones, and where there would be such a thing as a market price, and where uh, politicians couldn't just completely arbitrarily set the set wage rates. Yeah, so I think that the, the central point here with the NHS is the fact that it is a monopsony. It is a, mm. the single employer of particular junior doctors, because my best understanding of this is that you have to do your initial years of training in the NHS. You can then, there are some options to then work in the, the private healthcare system in the UK. Maybe that's why the subsequent wages have to be substantially higher. And I think a lot of doctors do spend some time in the public system or some time in the private system, and they supplement their wage that way. But at that initial level, um, it's very easy for the government to arguably pay below what the market rates should be for those professionals. Um, and certainly, if you look at other countries where there are more functioning markets, as you say, the, the, the going wages for those junior doctors are um, higher. Well, I've, I haven't found much of a pattern either way, whether um, it is generally true to say that in market-based systems, uh, doctors are paid more or less. Um, it's just hard to say because there are other factors. There is, uh, purely on a theoretical level, the health economics textbook would say, uh, if you have a monopsony employer, uh, whether that's a national health service or, or, or regional health services, um, where you have a monopsony, that that uh, that organization can drive down wages mm. um, because there's nowhere else to go unless you emigrate or do something that's uh, only vaguely related to the career you actually wanted to do. And therefore, in theory, you should expect wages uh, in the medical profession to be lower in such a system. It's just that there are other factors as well. I think particularly in Britain, uh, one factor is that in a situation like now, when there is a strike, uh, what matters is the relative trust uh, that different professions enjoy. Uh, politicians are, in all these surveys, which professions do you trust? Uh, politicians are always uh, about, <laughs> very close to the bottom, about on a par with estate agents, and doctors will be very close to the top. So mm -hmm. therefore, this is a, if something goes wrong, and right now uh, for, for a lot of people that will be the experience, they go maybe to an A&E department and don't get treated or, or takes ages. And they would then, in a situation like that, they would not blame the doctors 
uh, who made the decision to go on strike, they would blame the politicians. So it's about uh, the, the relative trust of different professions. And then you have situations like at the moment, the government is particularly unpopular. There is a perception that they're already on their way out. If it had been, say, three years ago, uh, it would have been a different situation when Boris Johnson could have said, uh, look, I've just won a very big majority. I have a big democratic mandate, even if my personal approval ratings are not fantastic. Uh, it would have been a different power dynamic. And these things uh, always play a role here. Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, one of the arguments uh, the unions make is, in fact, where the one part of the reason we're protesting is to help patients for the sake of improving the healthcare system. Do you buy that logic at all? Um, or are you more concerned about some of these reports that, in fact, there's been a, a kind of a far left momentum style takeover of some of the junior um, sections of the, the doctors union? Well, that may well be a reason why they're doing it now rather than... So the argument that they make uh, is that their real pay has fallen since 2009 or whenever, whatever their reference point is. Uh, but then that does raise the question, okay, that isn't new, uh, mm. then why now? Why have to strike now? Why wasn't this happening five years or seven years ago? And well, there yeah, were that... strikes uh, in, around Jeremy Hunt's time from junior doctors, so it's not exactly, maybe these are longer mm. and harder, but they have, they have gone on strikes before. Yeah, but th this one is a particularly disruptive one, it is in some ways exception, whereas all, all the other ones I have only quite vague memories of it. Uh, this one has created a bigger stir, and the changing uh, power dynamics there prob probably do play a role. And this could also be uh, on the uh, on the BMA side that they have more, yeah, activist doctors uh, probably coming through Twitter and, and that they feel emboldened, mm. and that they they just realize they get away with these claims that they are doing this for for patients. Uh, so this is uh, there, there's obviously a self-interested element, and I don't blame them for that. Uh, but there is also the point that uh, it is not wrong to say that the NHS does struggle to fill certain roles and medical emigration is a thing. Um, and I also believe that if it wasn't for the language barrier, we would see much higher rates of emigration to some of the continental systems. At the moment, what helps the NHS, or at least the, the financing side, is that uh, other than Ireland, uh, there are no developed English-speaking countries uh, nearby which have a functioning healthcare system. Australia is just very far away. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are record numbers of British doctors going to Australia. And this mm. is certainly something that's talked about. And in fact, uh, doctor friends of mine have pretty much declared their interest in moving to Australia in the next few years because the, the salaries are higher, the taxes lower, mm. um, and they get a, a better quality of life. Um, they also, interesting enough, made the point, and this is something which is which is often also a concern, which is about how does the system treat them? Are they forced to work these kind of ultra long hours, which you might have seen doctors do in the past? And what at least this anecdotally said is that the NHS has put a lot of work in to reduce that. So in some respects, junior doctors actually might not have seen a pay increase, but their conditions might have improved in the last 15 years. But I think it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. um, I think though the the underlying issue here though is the NHS is struggling. And even junior docs, I think, are probably under a lot of pressure in their lives. Um, and we do have these record long waiting lists. Um, is there something kind of unique and special about the NHS in this regard? Uh, is, the, is the state particularly bad? Or are we seeing this kind of similar situation in other countries as well? Are there, you know, the obvious factor of COVID and the healthcare system being shut down and people not coming forward for care? Obviously, that must have happened in other places as well. Why is this sense that the NHS is struggling so much? 
Well, the trouble is, uh, on waiting times, there's not a lot of data. Uh, in a lot of systems, um, that was just never considered much of an issue. Therefore, they don't even bother collecting the data. Mm. Um, but one system which does uh, collect them, because they've historically had the same problem with long waiting times, is the system in the Netherlands. And um, I've recently compared the waiting times figures that we had here before COVID uh, to the Dutch waiting times figures uh, during COVID. And it turned out uh, you'd get faster access, faster treatment in the Netherlands during a pandemic than you would here in a normal year. So it is, there is of course, their waiting times also uh, went up as well uh, during COVID and, and they did have a backlog. That's not unique to, to this system here. Uh, but we were starting from a bad place and it just escalated further. So um, as far as we have comparable data, it is fair to say that the situation here is particularly bad. And what do you think uh, explains why the NHS does so badly? You know, I got, I got a sense that the NHS effectively became a COVID healthcare service. You know, it, it, the NHS is, is, was very good at doing one thing temporarily, for example, providing vaccines to a lot of people in a very quick way, but it can only really do one thing at a time very well. And it struggles to do a lot of things that need to be done in a healthcare system at the same time, because it's not very innovative and dynamic and responsive mm. as a virtue of its command and control centralized nature. What, what's, is, is that the kind of right general analysis or is there something else going on here which can explain? Well, that, that, that is generally the case, that, um, that state-run systems, whether in, in healthcare or, or something else, um, are pretty good if they have one single task. I and mean, that's something that even Hayek uh, already conceded in the, in the Road to Serfdom, that, that he said if we had one single aim, there a, a state-run system can be just as good as a market system. It's just that when we have competing aims and um, different people having different needs and different preferences, that's when state-run systems uh, begin to struggle and that's when you need the dynamic component and the discovery process of the market. And therefore, I wasn't that surprised to, to see that the, the vaccine rollout, uh, that there, the NHS wasn't bad. It was, in fact, for a while, uh, one, one of the leaders worldwide. Um, but then it is, for example, if you look at, um, at some of the Eastern European systems, they had, uh, after the Second World War, they had for a while, the, there was no detectable difference in health outcomes between Eastern and Western Europe. Uh, so the, uh, the, the state-run socialist systems of Eastern Europe, when it came to the simple tasks of controlling infectious diseases uh, of the type that they had in the post-war period, they were just as good as the more market-based ones. It's just that once you've got those basic things under control and you've got people who come up with chronic conditions, and more individualized, more complicated issues. There, the Western systems uh, were the ones that quite clearly outperformed the Eastern ones. Therefore, you did then from the 60s or so onwards, you saw a stagnation in Eastern Europe and continuing improvement in Western Europe. Yeah, and that that's, seems to be, you know, the, the UK had the uh, Eastern European yeah. kind of socialist model of healthcare and has, has struggled as a result. Um, I, I'm struck kind of going back to your um, 2016 publication, Universal Healthcare without the NHS, that the kind of central point that, that always sticks out to me is just the extent to which the NHS is an underperforming healthcare system. Now, this is something that you've been banging the drum on about for a long time in terms of just the comparable number of cancer deaths, comparable number of avoidable deaths. The, the NHS just performs very poorly across all these rating systems. Um, and 
we've probably talked about this before so many times, there seems to be some awareness amongst the public now that this is the case, as we saw from that British Social Attitude Survey. It's not just the wonks like us, mm. but pretty much everyone now agrees, or at least a large number of people now agree, the NHS is not performing how it should. Are you surprised by that change? Um, I was a bit, yes. Because when, when my first papers on the subject uh, came out, it was, there was always this massive backlash uh, on, on medical Twitter and then later some of the left-wing media, how can you say that, how dare you denigrate uh, the, our NHS and, and people saying, but the NHS saved my life and all that. Now that, that still happens, it's just that there is now a much wider acceptance of the fact that the NHS has poor outcomes and you can see more people making uh, pointing to other systems. That's something that just didn't happen a couple of years ago. Uh, I'd say even two years ago at the height of the, the, the clap for the NHS uh, and, and the early stages of the pandemic and when, when you had uh, this rallying round the NHS effect, that wouldn't have happened. And that has really changed in the last two years that you see mainstream publications. Uh, so far it's pretty much limited to the conservative side. Uh, I would like to see something like that on in the centre-left media. Uh, but, but okay, somebody has to start, at least in the Telegraph, in the Spectator, uh, in the Times. You can now quite regularly read pieces where somebody says, well, they don't have the same problem in the German system. They don't have the same problem in the Swiss system. That's mm -hmm. now become, uh, I wouldn't quite say mainstream, but it has entered the Overton window. It has uh, become something that's at least permissible to discuss. Yeah, I mean, even we're treating the Labour's Shadow Health Secretary as admitted that the NHS needs reform. Now, it's always a bit vague about what they need, but some of that seems to include, for example, outsourcing and allowing um, private um, healthcare providers to do more operations so that we can deal with some of the backlogs. Now, that seems like a massive admission for someone on the left side of politics to say the NHS isn't functioning. But then what I suspect often happens here is when you say, why don't you think the NHS is functioning? The answer is often, well, it's because those terrible Tories have underfunded the NHS and mm. the healthcare system for the last decade and there's not enough money going into it and therefore that, that the reason why it's failing is not because it's, there's anything intrinsically wrong with its design, but because of these, uh, the, the, the Tories hate the NHS. Yes, um, although to that I would say, even if it were true, uh, and and it isn't. I've, I've looked at this recently. Uh, how do the how the outcomes uh, how the outcomes compare? Not just right now, but over time. If you go back a decade or one and a half decades, was there a time when the NHS was massively better than now? Uh, short answer is no. Uh, it's always been this bad. I mean, not not with the uh, with the massive waiting time figures that we have now, but uh, purely in terms of all the outcomes that I normally look at, the, the survival rates for this and that. Uh, there, it's always been the case that the NHS is doing worse than a, a lot of the other systems, bottom third usually of the, of the rankings. Uh, that has always been the case. But even if it were true that there was some golden age in the past when, uh, and, and that only the Tories mismanaged it, even there, even if that were so, I would still say, well, if you have a healthcare system that can only function under one party, that's a pretty weak system uh, because sometimes you will just have a government that you don't like. And that's where the market-oriented systems are just more robust. Uh, the current German health secretary is uh, somebody who I massively disagree with, uh, who is uh, about as far away from me politically as anyone can be. 
But nonetheless, uh, I wouldn't say, okay, if something goes wrong in, in that healthcare system, it's because that person, that bad person is in charge. Uh, it's, it's more than that is a system where it doesn't matter that much. Uh, who is the health secretary or, or who is in I government? Mean, you, I mean, I know my second argument, it doesn't matter that much who's the health secretary in the UK either. I mean, the fundamental issues in the healthcare system are far mm. deeper. And uh, indeed, the government has um, thrown record amounts of money at the NHS. It's a £170 billion a year organisation, which is mind-boggling. It employs well over a million people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't seem like there's... Uh, the, the big issue with the NHS is who the current minister is. No, uh, clearly not. I'm just saying, even if we accepted yeah. that argument on its own terms, even if you did see uh, a big difference, um, depending on whether it's this party or that party, even then I would still say, well, but you need a system that's a bit more robust. It's not when we have a bad government, uh, that doesn't normally mean that the supermarkets get worse or that the pubs get mm. worse, uh, because these sectors uh, have only limited exposure to politics. And therefore, if you, if you have a system that's so sensitive to who's in government, then that's not a great system. Do you think um, now is there's a potential opportunity for kind of serious reforms? So I think a lot of what we hear about here are kind of changing things around the edges. There's an acceptance the NHS isn't going well, but the mm. answer is why don't we increase medical school places or why don't we outsource a little bit and, and use the private healthcare system a little bit to do some of um, the, the, the NHS operations. Is there a potential here for more substantial reforms? And if so, what, what should they be? I don't think we're there yet. Uh, this, this, we're really at the early stages of a, mm. of a conversation uh, that it has become more mainstream to say the NHS is doing worse than many other systems. Uh, wasn't the thing until two years ago. It is a thing now, but it is often quite vague. It is uh, these these articles that I was talking about uh, in the Telegraph the Times. They would often say, "Okay, there's this other system, and they're doing better." But it's not much. They don't really explain. Okay, how does that system work? Why do they do better? How would you, if that if the political will were there, how would you move from the kind of system we have now to the system they have over there? And until that becomes part of the conversation, uh, we're, we're not ready for, for actual reforms. It's, it's very much in the early stages, um, pointing somewhere, saying they have better results. Okay, that has to happen. That has to be a conversation starter. But that is not in, in itself going to lead to reform. Let's, let's go there then. So if you were you know, in charge of the, the UK's health policy for a day and let's assume away any uh, political constraints for one moment. What, how would you, what, what is your ideal healthcare system model? Because I know you've investigated, written papers about the Australian system, you've written papers about the various different systems that exist across Europe. What, what takes your fancy? I'd go for something like the system in the Netherlands, universal private insurance system. Um, I, I guess the Australian system, uh, mixed system, okay, I don't need to explain, explain to you, uh, mixed system with a, uh, in case someone isn't familiar with it, um, a system where you have a state health insurer, but also a lot of private insurance uh, around it. Uh, that could be a compromise or a step in that direction. It's just that when I wrote about this issue, uh, and read about reforms from uh, healthcare ac experts in Australia, the, the kind of things that they dislike about their system, the kind of uh, reform proposals they make. Uh, I always got the impression that they basically just reinvented uh, the, the European social insurance system. They, that they basically, uh, without calling it that, would move 
Australia into the direction of, of the Netherlands in uh, a system with competing health insurers and competing health providers. So I would say why, why, not, go, why not go straight for that if, um, rather than for some compromise. And that could be done. I mean, there are, there are not many examples of that, but you could say um, if, you, if you look at, for example, Czechos, uh, well, I mean, Czechoslovakia as it was then, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia now, uh, they had in the early 90s, they did go from a Soviet type system uh, to a multi insurer uh, competitive system, and they did that within a couple of years, that transition, uh, starting in the early 90s before the country split, and then uh, the Czech Republic and Slovakia uh, continued separately. and. They did manage that transition, so there are some examples of that. They're not particularly good, they're not that well comparable, but it can be done. And in practice, um, so how would healthcare be delivered for the average, you know, uh, you or I, if we were to live in the Netherlands or we move to uh, that style of system? Um, what would we have to do and where would we get our healthcare from? Well, you would have, everyone would have to have private insurance. That could be through the employer, could be individually. It is mostly individually in those systems. Uh, the the employer-sponsored uh, health insurance is more of an American thing. Uh, in the, uh, the continental systems, it's more an individual issue. You have to pick a health insurer and a health insurance policy. What if and I can't afford to? Well, then you would get insurance. you would get a, a top up uh, from the government. It can be means tested or, or can be some other mechanism. Uh, but then the government would pay your premium for you in, in the same way that um, they, they would pay other things for you if, if, you, if you're unemployed, for example. And then when you get sick, you could choose among competing healthcare companies and the insurer would then pay the, uh, the bill for you. And there would be, in those systems, there are always some options with co-payments as well. I'm guessing that would not be realistic here, uh, that that is within the sacred cow that is the NHS, there's, there's the uber sacred cow, which is the, the aspect that it's got to be free, free at the, the point, point of use. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing if we ever were to move to a social insurance system, which is uh, unrealistic enough on its own, but let's say if, we had, if you had a thousand parallel universes, I could imagine <laughs> that in two or three of them that would happen, but in zero of them would there be uh, co-payments. So uh, it would be it would have to be a version of it that's still free at the point of use. And that can be done. I mean, these systems generally have co-payments, but that's a political choice. They don't have to have those. You could have a system where insurers have to cover 100% of the cost. But what you could then do is you could give them the, the option of offering health insurance policies with co-payments, but nobody would have to choose them. And you could have a system where just nobody, uh, an outcome where nobody chooses those, and then it just doesn't happen. But some people might want to have a system with a co-payment, but then a lower insurance premium in return. And the advantage of that overall would be you'd get a choice of what kind of insurance you have. You get a choice about where you got your care. Yeah. There'd be a strong incentive on your whoever's giving you the care to do it as efficiently as as possible, because yeah. you could always go to someone else to seek care. You'd have yeah. a kind of a, I suppose, like a kind of competitive system. Even if everyone has to have health insurance, there'd, there'd be some level of choice and competition and consequentially some level of innovation as well in uh, the delivery of healthcare. Yes, that's the idea, that uh, insurers are not obliged to contract with every healthcare provider. Um, they can also drop the bad ones, the underperforming ones, and therefore there is uh, pressure that the, the insurer would not just 
passively uh, reimburse costs, but they would be active, they would be the representative of, of the patient. Uh, because the argument is always that uh, for you as an individual patient, it's, it's difficult to say uh, which provider is, is, is better than another one. Uh, but therefore, you, you would have these specialized intermediaries who are um, in the way that, say, you want a supermarket to have a to pick the best wines for you and um, they would be the specialized intermediary and provide you with a range of choices but not unlimited they would make a pre-selection for you uh, saying these plans are all pretty good um, go for one of those well this has been a totally fascinating discussion not only about the current strikes but a, a totally different vision of delivering healthcare thank you so much Kristen Nemitz who's the head of political economy here at the IEA for this discussion. If you are enjoying the IEA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or you can also watch us on the IEA's YouTube channel. Thank you so much and tune in again next week.